And this morning, we are once again in our series in the book of Exodus, and we will be quickly soon finishing up in the coming weeks and then moving on, but we don't want to move fast through the end of this profound book. And so before I even start, let us pray. Father, thank you for your voice that you speak to your people through your word and that you express your love for us through your word. You express your care for us through your word. You warn us through your word. You protect us through your word. Lord, you encourage us through your word. Lord, you save us through your word. And this morning, once again, we ask that you would open our ears to hear your voice in your word, that we might be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for myself that you would help me to serve this church that I love to care for them through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. May 22nd, 1965 is a day that will never be forgotten in the Malamut household. I was 10 years old. My brother was eight. We were Cub Scouts. And dad took us to the Cub Scout Jamboree at the University of Maryland at Coalfield House. We got there and running around in the exact same uniforms were about 20,000 Cub Scouts. I had, being the talented young man that I am, won a prize as a Cub Scout but the prize was in a different building from Cole Field House. So my dad, trusting this 10-year-old, said, go to the building, get your prize, come back, meet me here at Cole Field House. So I did. And four hours later, I finally found my dad who had gotten lost. <laughs> I don't remember much about that day except the look on my dad's face when he finally found me. And I do remember him not saying a word as he led me and my brother to the car. I do remember him mumbling something about adoption as we were driving home. And I remember arriving home terrified that my bags would be packed and I would be put out the front door. Thankfully, my mom assured me that that would not happen. And a few hours later, my dad came into my bedroom and assured me that would not happen as well. Um, assurance is a wonderful thing. In chapter 32 of the Exodus story, the story, which it is a story, it is not teaching, it is a story, it is a narrative. 
In this story, this story about Israel's life with God, this exodus, it takes a turn for the worst as Israel grows impatient and they grow fearful because Moses had been on the mountain so long. He'd been there for 40 days and 40 nights and desiring a God, small g, a God to lead them to the promised land. They fashion this golden calf and say, as they do in 32 As Aaron says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. They wanted a God that would lead them to the promised land. And they ended up violating the very commands God had warned them not to violate. Israel lost its way. And the consequence of their sin is that in 32, in chapter 32, verse 10, God says these words to, to Moses, which are related to Israel. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn against them, Israel, and I may consume them, Israel, in order that I make, may make a great nation of you. And so, in other words, God is saying to Israel, I'm done with you. Not only am I done with you, but I am going to consume you. That means I'm going to kill you. I'm going to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. But the covenant that I promised to have a people who will be my own, I will fulfill that covenant. And how will I do it? I will do it through this one man, Moses. And so in verse 30, in chapter 32 and 10, he says, for, he said that he will make a nation out of you, and that I may make a great nation out of you. And so Israel is facing annihilation. But Moses pleads. Moses intercedes, and God relents. But, but they are no longer assured of their future promised land. Instead, They are experiencing the fear of being alone with with the wilderness, without God, because the Lord goes on to say, okay, I, I relent in consuming Israel, but I will not go with them. I will not go with them. Now, understand that It has taken much to get here because as we learn throughout Scripture, and we will learn a little bit later in in chapter 34, God is slow to anger. He is slow to anger and He's abounding in love. But, But with sin, there is a limit to God's patience. There is There is a limit to God's patience. This, and this is not Israel's first offense against God. Over the course of their journey, they have grumbled about not having water. They have complained about not having food. They've disobeyed by not following Sabbath instructions, and they have tested God by their unbelief. And this creation of the golden calf is simply a culmination, a sad and serious culmination of Israel's unfaithfulness, of their rebellion and their sin. And God simply declares it is over. He will keep his covenant through Moses, 
but just not with these people. And it appears at that moment that this is a very sad ending to what was an amazing story. An amazing story of God's deliverance. God's presence in His glory, in the cloud and in the pillar of fire. God's presence has always been a reassuring reality in Israel's life. He was always with them by day in a cloud. He was with them by night in a fire. And they were always assured, God is near. God is, God is close by. He, he's not left us. And, and because of their sin, at this moment, their assurance is shattered. It is shattered. But the story with God is never over. And what we learn in this story is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And when we are unfaithful, God always remains faithful. When we are sinful, God is exceedingly patient. Yes, there is a limit to his patience. And I don't know what that limit is because God relented here with these people. And in his, in his loving and caring providence, God prepared for this moment by earlier setting one apart as a mediator who would mediate for a very moment like this that Israel would not perish. That is grace from past preparing for present and even future. Moses is that mediator and he prays and he pleads with God to forgive their sin and he reminds God of his covenant promise. He says to God, look, look, you, you have this you have this desire to not only make yourself known to Israel, but through Israel, you want to make yourself known to the entire world, that the entire world would come to a place where they would worship God, where they would know God, where they would love God, where they would live for God. You want to make yourself known through this people and God, through your covenant promise, if, if, you, if you consume Israel, if you annihilate Israel, that's not happening. That is not happening, Lord. So he reminds God. And, and God isn't like, oh yeah, I, I totally forgot. Oh, thanks, thanks for reminding me. No, no, no. The, in, in God's sovereignty, God, God's sovereign wisdom and his mysterious sovereign wisdom is that prayer is the very thing that God uses to fulfill his purposes and his plans. And Moses' prayers, Moses' pleadings are the very thing God uses to relent. Knowing all along that M Moses would pray because in his providence he put Moses in that place to be a mediator and knew that Moses would pray and he would relent to Moses' prayer. And you think, that is just so, it's like spaghetti in the mind. How do I get my arms around that one? But that's how God functions. 
And he functions that way out of love for his creation, out of love for his people. And so Moses is this mediator and he prays. And so with God's great mercy, he relents. And in 32, 11, we see God relenting. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn against, hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Here, God, you've delivered this people with great power. You've made yourself known. You've shown yourself. So, so please, Lord, why, why would you do this? Why would you consume them? And, and then he goes on in verse 14, and, and it says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses prays and God relents. He will no longer abandon them, but he will not go with them either. Look at chapter 33 in verse 2. And the Lord, start in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land. God's not taking responsibility for these people anymore. He is done with them. So to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to your offspring, I will give it. And then in verse 2 of 33, God says this, I will send an angel before you. I will send an angel before you now. This is devastating news to Israel. Look at verse 4 of 33. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. They repented. They, they mourned. They don't want an angel to go with them. They want God. They don't want an angel's presence. They want God's presence. Think, think about what they're feeling at this moment. They have lived all this time with God near them. God has promised a a tabernacle where he will dwell in the midst of the Israelite community where his presence will be and this pillar of of fire this cloud that that has been God's presence God coming down on the mountain in a cloud God has been near them in his glory he has been near them and now he is saying I'm stepping back I'll send an angel and Israel is devastated Imagine if God said that to you. I'm done with your sin. This unfaithfulness that you keep perpetrating. I am done. So, so my, my presence won't be near. You've got my word. You've got the church. But not me. And that's what Israel is experiencing. They don't want an angel. They want God. And so Moses pleads again with God. And in 33, 12, and 13, we see this. Why, Moses says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he, God, bring them out of Egypt to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. 
Once again, God relents, and he relents from sending an angel. He, he is willing to go with him. And Moses in 33, 15, and 16, Moses says, listen, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is, not in your going, is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses knows, Moses knows, my friends, that if, if the Lord doesn't go with them, they're no different than every unbelieving nation surrounding them. They're, they're not distinct. They're, there's nothing different. And so Moses is pleading with God to, to go with them. And, and the Lord, the Lord again relents. I mean, t- to not have God go with them is disastrous. But, but the Lord, verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. The Lord says, okay, Moses, I will keep my covenant promise. You, your prayers have been answered. Your pleadings have been heard. Your intercession has been accepted. You have mediated. You, you have my favor, and so I, I will I will go with you. So, so Moses is assured the Lord is going to go with him and with Israel. But, but Moses, he's, he's a good man. He's a wise man. And he says, hey, hey, God, just one more thing. One more thing that will assure us that you will remain among us. And this is what Moses asks in verse 18 of 33. He says this, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And and God agrees and he explains what this is. In verse 19, the Lord responds and says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then I will take my hand and you shall take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so God said, Moses says, listen, I need this final assurance. Show me your glory. And this is what God does. He defines glory in this way. Glory is my goodness and glory is my name. Now, consider, consider that. God is going to make his goodness pass before Moses. He's going to proclaim his name before Moses. God's, God's glory is 
much more than some visible manifestation of a cloud and a pillar of fire. It's so much more than what Israel has already experienced, His goodness. When God says, I'm going to show you my glory, He's going to show him His goodness. And He's going to proclaim His, his name. And in, go down to 34, verse, starting in verse 5, this, this is what God's glory is. So when we talk about, I want to glorify God and, and we want to see God's glory and we want God's name glorified in the earth, God defines His glory in this way in 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him, Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A, merc- a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Moses' glory is His goodness. It is not some innocuous thing. What what do you think of when you think of the word glory? Do you think of bright lights? Do you think of this stunning flash of lightning? Do you think of thunder? What do you think of when you think of God's glory? God, God says right here, it's, it's my goodness. And this is what my goodness is. Here is my goodness. I am merciful. In Exodus 3.14, when God encounters Moses in the burning bush, it, it, it's, it's a glorious thing. But what reveals God's glory in that moment is not a burning bush. And there are two things I, I want us to see that, that make up God's glory in this passage. And the first thing is His, his name. His name that reveals who He is, His attributes. The, the very thing first thing the Lord does as he passes by Moses is he does, he says this, the Lord, the Lord. And he tells Moses earlier in 33, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. That is a part of my glory. In, 30, in 314, when, when Moses is before the burning bush, what reveals the glory of God is when God says to Moses, I am who I am. It's at that moment that Moses is hearing and seeing the glory of God because God's name is more than a label. It's, it's, it's more than a label. He declares to Moses that his, his name is the very essence of who he is. It reveals God's many attributes that God is, is who he is all in his name. And it is in his name that we see his, his attributes, his omnipotence. It, it literally means when the Lord says, I am who I am, literally means I cause to be. In other words, I'm the creator. 
I'm the sustainer. I'm the, the sustainer of life, past, present, and future. The, the world is upheld by the word of my power. I am who I am. God is, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But he's also omnipresent. It means he's all places, everywhere at the same time. The Lord is the name that declares he is the God of Abraham, and he's the God of Isaac, and he's the God of Jacob, and he's the God of every generation. And, and he is always present among his people. I am. Not I was. Not I will be. I am who I am. God's name also reveals his eternal presence. God has never had a beginning. He's, he's never had an end. He is the alpha and he's the omega. This is who he is forever. And in Psalm 102, this wonderful description. Psalm 102, 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. God is all powerful and he's all he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. He has eternal presence. He's self-existent. He exists by himself. His name, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, the one who I cause to be, is, is self-existent. He, he doesn't need anything or anyone. He's not dependent upon anyone. And he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-knowing because he's always existed. He, he he knows because he's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end. And when, when the Lord declares his name before Moses to assure him by his glory, it's all of these attributes that stand behind the name of God. It's so easy for us to reduce people and things to labels without understanding the depth and reality behind what that means. And when the Lord, the Lord speaks his name to Moses, Moses gets all of it. He assures Moses that he has never changed. He will not change. He cannot change. His promise and his promise is to always be present with his people and that will not change. That's who the Lord is. And that's, that's what extols and reveals his glory. But secondly, it's God's goodness. God's goodness, a revelation of God's character, not just his attributes that we see in his name, but his, his character. Here, again, is the gospel, the good news on display in the Old Testament. After Israel's great sin, after this golden calf, after they've rejected God, after they rebelled against God, after they've been an unfaithful people, God assures them with his goodness. Moses, Moses has seen God's glory. He's seen it in the cloud. He's 
seen it in the pillar of fire. He's seen it at the burning bush. He's been on the mountaintop with God when the Ten Commandments are being given. But Moses has never experienced God's glory like he does in this moment as he is hiding in the cleft of the rock. He hears this from the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will clear the guilty. In other words, listen, there's, there's a penalty for sin. There is judgment for sin. But there is good news. There's good news right here. God is merciful and he's forgiving. Moses had seen God's glory. He had mediated for Israel, but, but he's beginning to realize God's willingness to remain with them is not primarily because of Moses. It's because of God's character. He is, he is a God who is merciful. Lamentations 3.22 The mercies of God are new every morning. He is a God who is gracious, meaning he is filled with grace. And Ephesians 2, 7 talks about the immeasurable riches of God's grace. God is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He keeps steadfast love forever, which talks about his eternal nature. He is a God who forgives iniquity. He is a God who forgives transgression. He is a God who forgives sin. And he is a God who is holy and who is just and who must never compromise and so he must punish sin. This is a right definition of the glory of God. And this is what we should think about when we think about his glory. This is what we want the world to see through us of God's glory. That we have a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise and sovereign and eternal. And his character is patient and kind and forgiving and merciful. That's who we want to make known as we are, re- are called to display the glory of God in our lives. When we think about representing the glory of God and, and, and the New Testament talks about that. When we talk about representing the glory of God, it's not just we walk around with shiny faces which we'll talk about next week. But it's the attributes and character of God. This is a right definition. And this, this is what Israel needed to see. This is what Israel needed to understand. They needed to know, listen, I, I called you out to make myself known through you. But you need to know first what my glory means. And so God does that. And the Lord, the Lord stayed with Israel because of his glory, because 
He wanted his glory to be displayed in their lives. He wanted them to tell of his goodness. And the crowning glory in, in this, so, so God, has, God has said, okay, I'm not rejecting Israel. I'm not just going to send an angel. I'm going to be present with Israel. And not only will I be present with Israel, I'm going to show them who I really am. I'm going to show them my glory. I'm going to show them my attributes. I'm going to tell them my, my name again. That, that will assure them. But even, but even so, I'm, I'm not done assuring Israel because as you look further in 34.10, God does this. Because when Moses, when Moses came down from the mountain, God told him what was going on with the golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain. He has the Ten Commandments in his hand. What's the first thing he does with those Ten Commandments? Do you remember? He takes them and he smashes the Ten Commandments. Why? Because Israel had broken God's covenant. And this represented the breaking of the covenant. It, is, it, it represents why God was willing to consume them. Why God was willing to withdraw his presence from them. But in 34.10, God not only assures them through his character and assures them through his attributes, he assures them once again in verse 10, and behold, I am making a covenant. And he says this, he says, before all your people, I will do marvels such have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. Listen, God said, I have, I have, I have sent plagues. I've delivered you. I've parted the Red Sea. I have defeated armies. I have brought water out of a rock. I have had a pillar, a fire by night, a cloud by day. I have done so many marvels, but I'm going to do marvels that you have not even seen before because this is in keeping with my new covenant with you. And God assures Israel this this is just the crowning glory of God's promise and covenant to them. Crowning display of God's glory. Three thousand years have gone by since this event, if not more. And the only thing that's really changed is technology. <laughs> Think about it. We still face the same problems that Israel faced and the consequences that go with it. Sin always brings separation from God. Sin always brings separation from God. Psalm 104, 4, the psalmist writes, sorry, 101, 4, the psalmist writes, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Sin always brings separation from God. And the consequences of separation are only compounded because it creates doubt and a lack of assurance in us. A lack of assurance for God's love for us. A, a doubt in God's willingness to forgive us. And this doubt has potential to, to undermine or shipwreck our faith. We, we all struggle at times with sin. And sometimes we fail so many times we begin to doubt there is any way God can forgive us. And even if we do think he'll forgive us, we begin to believe we're just unusable by him. When we fail like this, we become 
so vulnerable to the lies that the devil speaks and, and we get weighed down with, with m- millions of thoughts. Like, I keep getting so angry with my children. How can God keep forgiving me? I've failed so many times with pornography. How could God ever forgive me? I've told so many lies. How could God ever trust me even when I say I repent? Our sin has so broken our marriage. Why would God care anymore? I've such a miserable prayer life. Why would God listen to me when I do pray? My Christian life has been so up and down. Does God even want me near? I've lived such a secret, sinful life. God has to be ashamed of me. I've had an abortion how can that act ever be forgiven? Maybe, maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin and God has totally left me. Israel's sin was serious. So serious that Moses in chapter 32 calls it a great sin. And yet, this is a redemptive story. And these verses tell us that God's grace is much greater than Israel's great sin. Listen, the main point of this story is not about Israel. The the main point about this story is about God's goodness in the face of a sinful people. This is our story as well, brothers and sisters. It is the story of God's goodness in the face of our sin. God's goodness isn't revealed to us on a mountain in the cleft of a rock, but on a cross on top of a hill. It's the gospel story of Jesus Christ who came to dwell among us, never leaving us in spite of our sin. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, his goodness, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Listen, this is a story of God's willingness to forgive. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just forgive us, but make us new, like he made a new covenant with Israel. And his commitment to always be with us, God dwells among us. It, it, this is a story of God's glory and grace. And it, and it climaxes thousands of years later in Jesus' death and resurrection and his promise to always be with us. Matthew 28, lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Romans, Romans 8, this is the ground we stand on when we struggle with sin and assurance. This is the ground that is our hope. Romans 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Because earlier in Romans, Paul said this. He said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so gospel truth needs a gospel response. Our assurance is not to be passive, but active. In in response to God's forgiveness and restoration, he reminds Israel of two crucial responsibilities they have to maintain their relationship with him. And the first one is worship. God God reminds them that they are to worship. As As he once again institutes this covenant, as he renews this covenant, in verse 18 of chapter 34, the Lord says, you shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. And later on he says, you shall keep the feast of weeks and keep the feast of ingathering. The first responsibility is to worship because the purpose of our worship is to bring God glory. And how do we do that? We do that by remembering in our congregational singing, in our study of his word, in our prayer time, in our reading. How do we bring God glory? We do it by remembering his salvation and his provision. We exalt his name as we think of what he has done for us in spite of our sin. We rejoice in our salvation. And then the second responsibility is to obey. Look at verse 11 of 34. Observe what I command you this day. Aren't those familiar words from Matthew 28? What do disciples do? Don't disciples observe all that Christ has commanded? And so that is what we do. Now what... What should we do? What should you do if you are struggling with doubt about God's love and forgiveness because of your sin, either past or present? About 10 years ago, I told, I I love watching on television in September. They have from Hawaii what is called the Ironman Triathlon. It It is a two and a half mile swim, it is a 112 mile bike ride, and it is a 26.2 marathon run. I love it, and I've always wanted to do it. And about 10 years ago, I told Marilyn, I, man, I'm gonna do a triathlon. And, and, and she just had a four-word response. You're going to die. <laughs> I... I st- I, I didn't do the Ironman, but I did 
what is called a sprint, kind of the baby step triathlon, which is, it is a half mile swim and it's a 15 mile bike ride and it's a 5K run. And, and I plan on doing that. And Marilyn said, okay, you're still going to die. But, but I did it. And, and as I was doing it, one, the first part of the, the triathlon is the swim. And we were swimming in a lake, and you swim out far into the lake. There's a buoy out there. You swim to the buoy, and then you, you swim back to shore. And as you're swimming, one of the things you, you learn in, in training for a triathlon is that when you're swimming, you have to do what's called sighting. Because when you're swimming freestyle, you can get off course. And so every so, about every hundred yards, uh, you count strokes, you look up, you breaststroke for a few strokes, and you sight on the buoy so you maintain the direction you're going. And when I was doing the triathlon, I, I did my sighting, and I noticed those who weren't, and they were going off in different parts of the lake. We, we, needed, we needed to sight. Moses sighted the buoy by looking at the goodness of God. By looking at God's glory. That's what he wanted to see. And we see the same in Christ. Listen, our, our assurance is grounded in our adoption. We are his children. We are in Christ. We are made righteous by our identity in him and not our failures. Must we stop sinning? Absolutely. But God is faithful to empower us and to change us because he dwells in us by his spirit. We can, we can do this. And, and the way we do it is we sight. This race, this triathlon we are, we sight. And here's how we sight. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, where he was sighting, endured the cross. Brothers and sisters, we have assurance. We have assurance because we have a mediator who intercedes for us day by day, moment by moment. And that's where we look. And if you are struggling with assurance, if you're struggling with the condemnation and weight of sin, if you are willing to confess, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There is nothing, my friends, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Because he took our sin and he bore our wrath on the cross. He, listen, he was truly separated from God. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was truly separated. But God will not separate himself from us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our confidence is not in who we are, our confidence is in who you are. Lord, I pray for those who, who are struggling with assurance and condemnation and despair and discouragement, that you would, you would lift them up today. You would encourage them today. You would give them fresh hope today that you are the God of goodness, 
as you declare your name to them. In Jesus' name, amen.